this is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English service. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing great, Matt. A busy week behind us and another busy week ahead of us. I'm sure you're right. So I'll be looking at a story that definitely didn't make headlines, elections in communist-ruled Laos. The result there is, of course, a foregone conclusion as it's a one-horse race. But there's some interesting stuff we can glean from looking at the candidate list. We learned that lawmakers who've been speaking publicly about corruption weren't put up for re-election. Paul, I'm sure over the years you've had the pleasure of covering your fair share of authoritarian elections. Oh yeah, the nail biters of North Korea, for example. But the favorite I can think of, I was in China about 20 years ago when the spokesman for the parliament said, yes, the National People's Congress is a rubber stamp but we want to make it a better rubber stamp. <laughs> well, that, that's honesty and grace right there. Okay, but first we turn to Myanmar. During this week just gone, we've seen increased use of force by police, military, and pro-junta thugs to suppress popular protests against the coup. We've also seen mass arrests. In New York on February the 26th, we saw Myanmar's ambassador to the UN side with the ousted government of Aung San Suu Kyi. And in Southeast Asia in recent days, Indonesia has made tentative efforts to engage with the junta and seek a peaceful resolution to the crisis. The prospects of that diplomatic effort succeeding appear slim. But if the international community can come to the fore, the influence of China will be key. Myanmar's giant northern neighbor is its main trading partner and source of foreign investment. China has also long been a source of weaponry for the military, which faces an arms embargo by Western nations. And yet it's not a straightforward relationship, right, Paul? In fact, that's true. And of course, neither of those two countries had a choice in their neighbor. And they have a really long border and a long history, Cold War history, Chinese Civil War history, and modern time dictatorship history. So to combine all of that and take a broader view of what's happening on both sides of the border, we have almost the best possible person to do that for us, Min Mitchell. As RFA's managing director for East Asia, Min Mitchell oversees coverage of China, including Hong Kong, Tibet, and Xinjiang, as well as North Korea. But long before we were lucky enough to get her at RFA, She was a veteran television news broadcaster in her native Taiwan. On today's subject, however, she brings a much more rarefied perspective. Min's spouse, Derek Mitchell, was the U.S. ambassador in Yangon from 2012 to 16, the early promising days of the democratic transition in that country of 54 million people that has now been frozen by the military takeover. Thank you for making time for us, Min, and this must be a real bittersweet time for you to watch things unravel in Myanmar. Yes, obviously very sad and angry for all my Myanmar friends who thought these years of military intervention were behind them. It's a complex subject and it's unfolding as we speak. Now, when it comes to China, there's a long and complex history that China and Myanmar share along a border that's about 2,000 kilometers, 1,200 miles long. I will try to tease out the critical elements of that shared history in conversation rather than burden listeners with a potted history. So first off, there's a lot of rumors flying and a lot of speculation, and people have been protesting in the streets against China, assuming that China is behind a lot of this. But uh, from your uh, perspective and your experience, is this coup in Myanmar seen as good for China in terms of serving Beijing's interests? 
Paul, I think this is a very good question. First of all, I think no one wants an unstable neighbor. China certainly doesn't care if Myanmar is fully democratic, but China definitely doesn't want Myanmar in turmoil. In recent years, we know Beijing has invested like billions of dollars into the China-Myanmar economic corridor as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. What China wants in Myanmar are four key things. First, stability in the country, especially along its long border, as you just mentioned, and ability to do business and extract resources. And China also wants access to Indian Ocean through development of roads and railways from Yunnan to Rakhine State and an ability to maintain privileged influence in the country's affairs so their interests are protected. They also definitely want to prevent the United States from having too much influence there. That exact diplomatic game you probably watched play out when you were living in Yangon. But uh, how are China's relations with the the Aung San Suu Kyi government that was just deposed and the military in recent years. Did they have a favorite? So the Chinese ironically had a relatively comfortable relationship with Dao Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD. Beijing courted NLD very early on to try to balance what they thought was NLD's instinctive Western orientation. But after the Rohingya crisis in 2017, the relationship became much closer. The NLD became more alienated and isolated from the West, including the United States. And China was very happy to take advantage of the opportunity to fill the gap. That doesn't mean the NLD gave into everything China wanted. In fact, the NLD did pretty well to manage China under the circumstances, but the NLD was fine turning to China for assistance and political cover, including at the UN over the Rohingya issue as needed. So the military and the commander-in-chief, Ming Online himself, on the other hand, have been much more wary and negative towards the Chinese. It's likely why they opened up to the West over the past decade to balance their international relations. The military does not trust China's support to ethnic armies and double game that they play in the country. Many of them have fought against China-backed forces, and the older ones fought alongside soldiers who may have died fighting Chinese-backed communist insurgencies up to the late, I think, 1980s. Overall, as a small country, uh, I think Myanmar is very sensitive to outside influence by great powers, whether military or average citizens. You know, that makes a lot of sense because like China, Myanmar is also a multi-ethnic country. And historically, those groups, the Kachin and the Shan in Myanmar, and then the Tibetans and other groups in Yunnan, they form their own buffer between the two civilizations, the Burmese and the greater Chinese civilization. There's Historically, they've had a buffer and a lot of mountains, but now that modern technology brings them closer together, there's a lot more interests colliding, it would seem. Exactly. Another view of this whole crisis will treat it as a diplomatic test for Beijing, who is the most powerful country in the hemisphere, and as we've noted, shares a border with Myanmar and a long history. Is there any reason to think that China can break the deadlock through intervention by itself or working with the ASEAN countries next door to Burma? Yeah, Paul, I think it would be an important signal to the military if China and ASEAN countries 
register publicly and privately their unhappiness with the coup and impose some kind of cost on the generals. Whether it would break the deadlock or not is a question. Again, Myanmar is very aware of external influence in their internal affairs, and I think the military will not want to be seen as being pushed around by others. In the end, this is a domestic issue, but if trusted partners of the military could figure out where there might be some flexibility in the commander-in-chief, that could be helpful in a quiet campaign to get him to recalculate. Paul. Thanks. As you said, it's quite complex, and I sometimes think when I see issues like this arise that everyone will naturally assume that, oh, a dictatorship in a country is automatically going to be friendly to and welcomed by China, but we know it's now more complex thanks to some of the information and ideas you've shared. Um, more broadly than the military, what about attitudes towards China among ordinary Myanmar people or the elite that you've had contact with? Is it considered a good neighbor? Is the culture considered fascinating? Or are they afraid of it? Or is it somewhere in between? I think it's a relationship of convenience. As you mentioned, they have a long common border. China can and does make a lot of trouble for Myanmar historically and today. The Myanmar government and people know they have to get along with their big neighbor. Uh, some make good money doing business with China, but the Myanmar military does not trust China at all. Chinese along the border, they supply ethnic armies fighting the military with weapons. Meanwhile, the Chinese make it very clear that there can be peace in the country without Beijing's involvement. The military deeply resents the double game Beijing plays in the country, just generally as a small country with experience with being colonized. Myanmar is very sensitive to outside influence. So I would say I always feel from the Myanmar elites I dealt with that there was no love lost for the Chinese. That does stand to reason if you look around the border of the People's Republic of China, there's as many foes as friends and China is huge and does share borders with dozens of countries. Min, thanks for making time for us on this uh, issue with, in which you have an emotional connection to, as well as a long professional career of observing the behavior of China. Thank you, Paul, for having me. Thanks, Paul and Min, for that analysis of the dynamics between China and Myanmar, a topic I'm sure we'll be returning to in future podcasts. Now we shift a little further to the east, to a smaller nation player on the Asian stage. It was recently national election time in the Lao People's Democratic Republic, and that once-in-five-years political event escaped the attention of the world's media, or most of the world's media, and that's for good reason. For one thing, most outlets don't have much capacity to cover Laos. But secondly, and probably more importantly, there's never much drama when citizens go to vote in a one-party state. And the February 21st election was a classic of that genre. There were just 224 party-approved candidates vying for 164 National Assembly seats, and none of them were independents. That doesn't mean there was nothing to learn from this exercise in, quote, people's democracy. But we may glean more from who was missing from the list of candidates than who was on it. I'm joined by Ungeo Suksevan of RFA Lao, who did some interesting reporting in the run-up to the election. 
about how some outspoken members of the outgoing parliament have been sidelined. Welcome, Ungel. Thanks for having me, Matt. Sure thing. So, first of all, can you tell us about how candidates are selected for a Lao election and what responsibilities the successful candidates have once they're elected? The election in Laos is not like uh, in other countries. You know, in other countries, people have the power to vote for candidates or the party they like. But Laos is a single party state. That means only the Lao People's Revolutionary Party has got the power to order people to vote, whether or not the people like it. In Lao election, the party select candidates to sit in the National Assembly or the parliaments. People's voice does not matter to the election. What successful candidates have to do is to pass and approve the law and bring people's problems up to talk at the parliaments. But in reality, not many successful candidates dare debate about the real problems from the grassroots levels. We see the example the members who criticize the national leaders for the corruption will get trouble. Okay, I get you. So the national parliament is kind of like a rubber stamp for the ruling communist party, but people who are elected do have some scope to voice criticisms of the ruling party, but they have to be very careful in how they do that. Now, you reported about two national assembly members of the outgoing parliament who'd established a bit of a reputation for speaking out about corruption. And you noticed that they weren't on the candidate list this time. Can you tell us who these people were, who you reported on, and a little bit about their background? So in the current parliament, there are two outspoken members. The first is uh, Iron Lady, Bokham Tipavong, who is uh, chairwomen of the Justice Department of the parliament. The second is the Sai Tong Kiao Dong who is a parliamentary member and is the former vice Vietnam mayor. They are outspoken and dare speak about the corruption issue that the top national leader get involved. Tell me a little bit more about Bo Kham Tipavong, who you said is known as the Iron Lady, like, like Margaret Thatcher was in England or in the United Kingdom. Can you maybe give us a taste of the sort of things that she'd said in Parliament? Bo Kham actively deal with complaints from people who have problems during the development projects issued by the governments or the party. What she said at the parliament is, rainwater does not leak from the ground floor of the house, but it leaks from the top roof of the house. That means corruption is from the national leaders because right. their family members get involved in the ghost project. That is very outspoken for, for someone in the... Lao Parliament. Is there anything else that she said that, that got your attention? Yeah, regarding to uh, land issues, she said that the, some politicians and some national leaders have got conspiracies with the private sector to, to grab the lands from the poor. I see. And do you think her comments um, had much of an impact? I mean, it sounds like she had quite an influential position in like the Justice Committee of the Parliament. Do you think she had much impact with what she was, the sort of things she was saying? So at least uh, she is the voice of the people. She raised the people's problem, talk at the parliaments, and she make people's voice be heard outside. Okay. So she had quite a high public profile 
But what are your sources saying about why Ms. Borkham and also Saitong Kao Dongdi, who you also mentioned, what are your sources saying about why these people weren't chosen to contest the February 21st election? Well, the source who is close to high-ranking official told me that Borkham and Saitong were not selected to contest the election. Because of what they said at the National Assembly's or the Parliament's ordinary meeting, top national leaders don't like them. Okay. Can you t tell us a little bit about what sort of things uh, Mr. Saitong had said? He said the country will be bankrupted when the middle class officials have got conspiracy to get monies collected from people's tax. And then he still said that the country poorer, poorer the state official will get richer and richer. Well, there's no mistaking his message there. And I'm sure a lot of Lao people agree with what he says, because it seems that corruption is a, a long-standing problem. And when officials are caught for their involvement in corruption, party and the government rarely takes strong action against them. Yes, right. And many people are talking about this issue and many people like what is said at the parliament. It seems like uh, they are reflecting corruption that the country is facing right now. Setting their cases aside, um, it seems that most of the members of the current parliament were actually passed over as candidates this time. Do we know why that is? Now, actually, there are one... 48 members of current parliaments, but only 23 members were allowed to contest the election on, on February 21st. When I talked to the spokesman of the National Election Committee, he told me that there are two reasons for those who are not in the list of the new candidates for this election. The first is that some members who reached the retirement age must not be allowed to contest the election. The second is the members who must get back to work with their own organization. When I talk to another source, I have learned that another reason is the member who dare criticize and investigate the national leaders for corruption issues are kicked off the list. So it seems like there's some uncertainty about why they've They've changed the makeup of the parliament so radically. But I understand that a lot of the names of the candidates are from familiar families of former party leaders. Is that right? Yes, the Tonglun regimes would like to uh, support the children or the relatives of the national leaders to, to contest the, the election. When are the results of this election expected? I mean, do you think regular Lao people care much about the outcome? Presumably, it might be come out next month, but uh, let's see. I have talked to people in Laos, and they just said they are not interested in the election, but they have to vote according to the party's order. And they know that their voice does not matter to the result of the election, the party actually make decisions of the selecting the candidate to sit in the parliament. Now, this election is like a follow-up to the party congress that took place last month, which promoted the current prime minister as the new party secretary general, Mr. Tonglun Sisulit. Do you think that fighting corruption is a priority for him? And is there any indication that he's making any progress? It's a good question. 
let me say this. People understand that it is priority for him, I mean, Tong Lun. But the thing is, it is like a something hidden under the carpet. The corruption still exists, but it changes channel. For example, Tong Lun issued a ban on timber and lock, but the smugglers hide timbers in the truck with other products in order to export to Vietnam and China. Another thing is that Tong Lun declared to auction the luxurious car of the national leaders in order to make money for the national revenue. But the person who buys one of the luxurious cars is an official of the Ministry of the Finance. That official is not rich, you know. So my question is, where is his money from? A source told me the official who buys the car is a nominee of some national leaders. It seems that the corruption is under control during Tonglun regime. You, you, you see the state media report that hundreds of state officials who get involved in corruption are fired and punished. There are still small officials, but the big guys in the party are never fired and never arrested. It seems like the, the government or the party just catch a small fish, but the big fish is a free and it's still at large. Right. I guess they're so senior, they're untouchable. Unkao, thank you very much for talking to us about the Lao election and the endemic problem of corruption. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks, Matt and Unkao, for that look into Lao politics and its problem with corruption. I saw just this week that RFA Lao had a nice news break about a province backing away from acquiring a fleet of cars for its officials. Yeah, that's right. The provincial government in Atapu, which is a province in the south of Laos, and actually one of the poorest provinces in, in Laos, had been planning to splurge about one and a quarter million dollars on 30 high-end cars. But it backed off after the prime minister of Laos, who's now the party chief, made a veiled public criticism of it. I think the planned acquisition had really angered local people. Yeah, in a country with still a lot of poverty, even before the coronavirus shut down the economy, there are people living rough after a dam disaster in 2018 and other uh, crying needs of the population there. Yeah, it kind of beggars belief, actually, that they wanted to buy all these fancy cars when you still have thousands of people displaced from the Sepian Senam Noi dam disaster you referred to like uh, two and a half years ago. Yes, indeed. Please join us again next week. Until then, you can read RFA coverage on our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts are at that site or on other platforms like Spotify and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you've any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia alongside Paul Eckert. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again 